what people don't fundamentally understand is that the way your technology is architected, the way your organization is designed, the way your teaming strategies are put together, the way your resource management happens, the way your work approval systems happen, your OKRs, your KPIs, your governance frameworks, um, all of that stuff is a system and it all has to work together. And, and a lot of times we treat these processes as if they're distinct processes. Um, you know, how many companies might you go into that have uh, a cloud migration or product modernization or something going on? And then the agile transformation is being managed by a totally different group of people. Yeah. Like that's they're the same thing. Um, We've walked into places that are basically have a consultant in doing all of their product management consulting and they bring us in for their agile consulting. It's the same thing. Right. Um, Yeah. You know, somebody, hey, we have a bunch of consultants in coming up with our strategy. We want to get through the strategy stuff and then we'll do the transformation work. It's kind of the same thing. Hey, this is Dave Pryor. Welcome to Leading Agile Sound Notes. This is the last podcast of 2023 and Mike is here. Hey, Dave. And Christmas mirth. Yeah. Good time out of your holiday. Yeah, seriously, this is like kind of a neat week um, in the consulting business because it's either like you got the end of the year wrapped up, you got the first quarter wrapped up or you don't. Um, a lot of clients are taking time off. So it's um, it's kind of some forced downtime. Yeah, a little bit. Um, and so, you know, it's kind of neat that it's bookended between Christmas and New Year's. And so had uh, all the kids home for Christmas. Cool. And cool. uh, right after the first week of the new year, we're all going out and doing a ski trip together. So it's oh, nice. Cool. That. So I know you were skiing a lot last year. So Yeah. I don't know how much I'm going to this year. I went out for a couple of days. Um, okay. And then we're going to go out a couple of days as a family. And maybe I'll get out one more time, maybe two more times. So and you ski, cool. not snowboard, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. My oldest okay. or my youngest son snowboards. And okay. I have this this idea that maybe I'll get a snowboard, but I took a lesson in snowboarding one time and just face planted a lot. And I just decided I'm too old. <laughs> Not your deal. So, you know, it's like, it's one thing, like you can start to scoot down the mountain, but you start to try to do those S turns and you catch a funny edge and you're just like, and, yeah, like, this and is how it works in the video game. And then I want to put my hands out. I'm just afraid I'm going to break a break a, a my forearm or wrist or something. Like that. So I, I feel like when I'm skiing, I'm a little bit safer. So, all right. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, cool. So I had a couple ideas for topics today. We're gonna. Okay. Your idea was to blend them together. So okay. um, I'll just start out with with one of the main ones. So okay. this has been a very complicated year for Agile. I think since yeah. I got involved, it's been the most tumultuous year between you know people getting laid off and changes in companies and companies yeah. that are doing their own weird thing that's not really working right. Yeah. And I want to just get your take on it. Like where you think what what is the state of Agile from your perspective, and where do you think it's going? in the future? Um, you know, man, I don't know if it's like, I could probably take two takes on it. Um, I don't know if it's just agile per se. Um, I think the, I think the economy is interesting right now. I think (laughs) it's changed, right? Well, it's like, it's like, you know, we had a kind of rough 2022, but 2023 has been better. Mm-hmm. And I think 2024 is going to be better in 2023. It might get us back to where we were at in 2020, 2021. Um, so it's like there's demand out there. There's there's people that want to do this stuff right. for sure, right? There's people that are talking to us. Um, you know, it feels like the, the, the buying cycles are a little bit different, like maybe a little bit slower. Like, I don't okay. know, right? I mean, sometimes it's hard, right? So you don't really... You don't know if it's your, you know, I think I'm in tune with the market. I'm pretty sure I'm in tune with the market. Right. You know, again, like there's some buying things that I think are a little bit different. So so I think to some degree, the, the market's tough, right? Okay. And, and if you're not really connected really deeply to the value that's being produced, Right. I think there's some risk. I mean, we've leaned out our our ops group, um, you know, lowered SGNA, um, stopped making some investments in platform kinds of things that we were doing and just really focusing on just efficiency and core consulting. And I imagine a lot of other companies are, are doing that yeah. as well. Um, as it pertains to agile coaching, you know, it's a, it's an interesting thing, right? Um, I talk about that comic all the time. 
like there's like it's math here, it's math over yeah. there. A few scientists at the whiteboard, you know, then a miracle happens. Right. And and I do think there's just a lot of practitioners out there that that believe if you do agile stuff and you think agile thoughts and you and you be agile and those kinds of things that that's gonna that that's gonna fix it and 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 what i what i suspect is that a lot of the companies that are attempting agile you know they're not doing some of the basics right they're not forming teams you know the teams can't build backlogs they can't produce working types of software and to the extent that they can then you know are they able to roll up that work into you know a project or a portfolio that kind of a thing right um one of the challenges that i see from agilists a lot is this hesitancy to want to measure things to want to make and meet commitments um you know i I think there's a really mature way you can look at agile right it's it's like agile is all about fixing time and cost and variance scope and so, you know, the things that we do to decompose work, the things that we do to feed work in, the way we make trade-offs, it's just a, just a great way to, um, to manage scope. But, but so many people just have such low faith in management. They don't want to expose metrics. They don't want to expose progress. Wow. They don't, they don't want to communicate. Um, okay. they just want to say, trust the team. And, and I'm not saying that's everybody. I'm just saying it's yeah. a lot of people. It's a, a lot of times when we go into companies that have, existing coaching staff so you get a lot of that kind of stuff yeah and and i just think it's really really counterproductive and and when things get tight and you're spending money it's kind of like when when systems are flushed you can flush with cash you can kind of go okay well we're going to take a chance on this we're going to see yeah and then when things get tight and you're like man i have so many dollars and i gotta have this stuff on time and market economy is really tight and you know, and I just think there's a lot of people looking at their coaches and just going, are they really making a difference? Well, like, let me let me yeah. ask about something that I saw a couple of times. Uh-huh. This year. Big organizations doing like their own kind of home version of safe yeah. quarterly planning. Um, and I, I was working with teams that felt obligated to say yes to everything and and had habit were habitually overcommitting. And. There was yeah. no, I mean, I, on the one hand, I want the teams to stop doing that. But on the other hand, I'm wondering why is the leadership, why is management, did they not understand that this is happening? Did they not see it? Did they not think about like, what are we well, doing that's making people feel like they have to say they can do impossible things? It, think, think about it, right? It's like, man, it's, it's so tough to unpack all these things. I don't think it's so, so the, I, I think the teams, people in general want to do what their bosses want them to do. Okay. Right. When you show up to work, like there was this one example, this is a small company 10, 12 years ago, they did mobile testing software and the CTO comes in and he says, Hey, we need to get all this stuff done for this next release so we can have it at this trade show in time. Right. And the team's just freaking out. Like there's no way we could do it, blah, 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 blah. But we can't say no to the CTO. We can't blah, 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 blah. And I said, okay, I didn't happen to be on site that usually that day or two or week or whatever. I said, okay, let's just think about it. Let's lay out his epics. Let's do this. Let's do some high-level estimation. Let's do some breakdown. Right. Let's figure out what things are reasonable, what things are not, what things are going to increase risk and complexity, what things are not, what are we going to do here, what are we going to do there? And and we brought the CTO in later that day, and I said, I said, okay, based upon what you asked of the team, right? In our, and this was like a first-pass analysis. Um, this is what we think we can do in time. Is that okay? And he goes, yeah, that's perfect. Thank you for telling me that. <laughs> so, and, so that's that's where I was going to go. No yeah. boss, you said they want to do what their bosses want. No boss wants people to tell them to promise well, things they can't do. Well, but there's a, but there's a, you know, this is interesting. I experienced this, you know, just even being CEO of Leading Agile. It's, um, you can, you can do everything that you know to do and I'm not saying I'm a perfect leader by any stretch of the imagination, right. but you can do everything that you know to do to build trust, to create transparency. And at the end of the day, there's, there's an, a power dynamic yeah. and, and people want to say yes to you. They want to please you. I mean, there's a lot of times I'm in meetings. I'm like, okay, guys, like this is brainstorming. I'm a peer in this meeting. Like I need you guys. I need you guys to tell me if you think I'm full of crap. If you think I'm asking for too much, like I need 
you know, I need options, I need trade-offs. And even still, like, I feel like I have to say it all the time with the same people all the time, because it's so easy to fall into that person's in charge, that person pays my salary, that person can me, that person, right? And so there's just a natural kind of self-preservation act. And that's why, that's why having some sort of way to have a community, uh, have a conversation over trade-offs is is such a big deal. Like, I mean, I, we all know that estimates are 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 fallible. Mm-hmm. Um, we all know that metrics like velocity are fallible. But if we can just do something like, um, you know, get it close enough to where the team can make trade-offs in the small and the business can make adjustments, but we kind of know what's going on. I did this exercise with the company. Um, all my stories are getting old because I've been in CEO land for a long time. But um, but it, when I was on the ground coaching, there was like I intuitively knew that this team was it. This organization was at least 10 X overcommitted. Right. Okay. So we did this exercise where we brought all leadership in the room and it was like all the middle managers and everything too. So senior leaders, middle managers. And right. on one wall, I put I said, OK, I want you to put all the features that you want from from highest priority to lowest priority and just just list them all across the wall. And I want everybody in the room to put how long they think it's going to take a single team to do. So we did something like team weeks, really rough cut, right? Right. So team weeks. And so, and then, so over on the other side of the room, intentionally on the other side of the room, we put up a bunch of like um, sprints, Mm -hmm. right? Up for all the sprints that would make up the release. And, and, and so when they did the estimates, we made, and again, these were not fine grained at all. Right. I, I made a rule. It's like anybody can change somebody's estimate, but you can't lower anybody's estimate. If you want to raise it, you can raise it, but you can't lower okay. it. Okay. And so it was a funny exercise. So everybody's doing that, participating. I'm saying, okay, so now let's start taking the highest priority things and start moving them into the sprints. Okay. Right. And you, and you start to see the light bulbs go off. About 20 or 30 minutes in, right. it's like, oh, crap, we're filling them up yeah. for and, – and we don't even have like 80% of the stuff in the sprints. And it was like one of those like, you know, Cotter talks about gloves on the table moments where it's like they had no idea how irrational the ask was. Okay. You know, and then and then what that did is they started to self-organize and like, OK, well, how can we take this? How can we break it into smaller pieces? How can we do this? Yeah. And, and so it started driving the right behaviors with people. Okay. And and what what I tend to find is that if you're 10x overcommitted, there's no basis for a rational set of tradeoffs. There's no basis for sure. communication. But if you're 2x or one and a half x or one and a quarter x. Sure then you can kind of start to fine grain it in, right? So okay. the idea is not to get it perfect. The idea is to get it close enough to negotiate. Do you think that um, – uh, one thing I saw happen at a nonprofit I taught this stuff to, they created boards for all their projects. Okay. Every every wall surface of the third floor of this building was covered. And a week later when I went back, it was all gone. Okay. And when I asked what happened, they said it was too overwhelming, so we threw it away. Do you see a lot of leadership doing what you just described? They are 10x over whatever. Just looking at and going, well, this we can't have we want if we do it this way. So let's just do it the other way where we say everything's a P1. Well, I, th- I think there's two different things, right? So d- are there organizations that are overwhelmed with the volume of work um, that they need to do and they don't feel like they have a rational way out of that? Yeah. Um, yeah. Right. Um, But the market's putting pressure on them and the leaders are putting pressure on them. And it's not just um, bad managers that want a bunch of stuff. I mean, a lot of the stuff comes from, you know, you you see like, you know, there's maybe three classes of work that have to go into the system. There's the project work that has to get done. There's the new features and the roadmap. Right. And then um, they've got maintenance work, break fix, which gets more and more because of poor architectural decisions, technical debt, defects, yeah. things like that. Um, you know, manual testing, not having CICD pipelines, right? A lot of, um, you know, lack of automation across the system, right? So that starts to get overwhelming. And then uh, then what makes it worse, those two are almost always the case. And then what right. makes it worse, sometimes you have companies that are sales driven. 
mm-hmm. and they're trying to do um, like pay like like dollar projects, like they get paid to do right. features, custom features for a client. And they're trying to figure out how to interleave all that work into a fixed capacity system. That doesn't have you enough know? capacity. To yeah. Do yeah. And 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 it's and it's fascinating because, you know, even if I get good at breaking down work and estimating project work and doing minimally viable projects and operating within time and cost constraints and varying scope and things like that. Right. Then I get a last minute commitment to an external client who wants to pay us money to do something. All that goes out the window. Yeah. Um, I get a bunch of critical client defects and all of it goes out the window. Right. And so, and so these are, these are fairly complex systems. And so now on the other side, you know, so that's, that is kind of overwhelming. Right. And then on the other side, if you don't have a system of delivery that, that accommodates all of that kind right. of work and counts for all that kind of work. And you can have rational discussions about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like, it's like if, if I know that I have 10 times more work to do than I can do, and there is no way to say no. Yeah. And just leave me alone. And let me just, let me just walk off the cliff. I'll work as hard as I can, as long as I can, do as much as I can, but I've already 10 times overloaded. I'm not going to spend 10% or 5% of my time planning stuff. Right. It's nonsense. Do you, right? do you, I, I've actually asked, I've actually asked senior leadership teams. I said, is it, is it better here to um, say yes and then fail? Or could you say no, if you could accurately tell them what you could be able to do within that time and cost constraint? And I've had, and I've had literally had senior leadership teams say, it is it is safer for me to say yes yeah. than to fail. Well, than that's it is for me to to negotiate scope at the beginning. Do you see companies that are saying like, yeah, we know this isn't going to work, but we're going to do it anyway because it's easier to just keep pretending than it is to go through the struggle of changing and actually figuring well, it out. Like organizations aren't usually that self aware, okay. but you one hundred percent see that behavior okay. for sure. And so then they're not aware of, of how the system itself is creating the problem they say they want Agile to fix. Yeah, man. And that's what, you know, so one of the other things you want to talk about, and maybe this is an interesting segue, is the idea of like systems thinking. Yeah. And then, you know, and then the idea of local optimization, which is really kind of uh, the other side of that coin. Um, what you really have is the system problem. Right. And, and, what people don't fundamentally understand is that the way your technology is architected, the way your organization is designed, the way your teaming strategies are put together, the way your resource management happens, the way your work approval systems happen, your OKRs, your KPIs, your governance frameworks, um, all of that stuff is a system mm-hmm. and it all has to work together. And, and a lot of times we treat these processes as if they're distinct processes. Um, you know, how many companies might you go into that have uh, a cloud migration or product modernization or something going on? And then the agile transformation is being managed by a totally different group of people. Yeah. Like that's they're the same thing. Um, we've walked into places that are basically have a consultant in doing all of their product management consulting and they bring us in for their agile consulting. It's the same thing. Right. Um, You know, somebody, hey, we have a bunch of consultants in coming up with our strategy. We want to get through the strategy stuff and then we'll do the transformation work. Well, it's kind of the same thing. Right. And so and so. um, Yeah, man, you're going to want me to fork off and hold on. So I have a couple questions about it. Yeah, go for it. So do you the first maybe the shorter question is, do you think that people running these companies are aware of systems thinking beyond simply a concept? Like, do you think that they spend time trying to understand the system? And that sort of the follow-up would be, is that a role that should exist? Should there be somebody whose job it is to just step back and look at this and say, well, this is causing this to this to this to this to this, and this is why that happens? Because there's nobody, you know, you're talking about these things happening separately because there's nobody whose job it is to keep it all orchestrated. Um, I, I think, I think some things are changing right now in in companies and, um, 
you know, if I have a static assembly line um, that's moving stuff through a supply chain or through whatever, and um, I have a hierarchy of bosses and managers and things like that, and the work can truly be cascaded out through that hierarchy, mm-hmm. like your, your structure probably is okay, right? I mean, that's not my area of domain expertise. I'm sure right. there's ways you can make it more efficient. But I, but I think what we've seen over the last 30, 40 years is businesses becoming deeply technology enabled. Mm-hmm. And, and there isn't a unified theory for how technology enabled organizations should be designed. And, okay. and it's like, Oh, excuse me. Redesign because they're already well, redesi- well redesigned. If you redesign, well, it's kind of like it's kind of like if if you've evolved prior to becoming a technology enabled organization, yeah, then you might have to redesign it in order to be that. But even if you're growing one from scratch, um, there's no unified theory. Like you know, I've, I think I've, we've talked over the years about some of the volunteer work that I do down at University of Florida and um, in some of the industrial and systems engineering classes that I go into. And this is pre-pandemic, maybe 17, 16, 17, 18, something like that. Um, I started guest lecturing in industrial and systems engineering classrooms. And I would talk to these kids, you know, what do you do? You know, just get them talking to me, right? Just get them to tell me how they see their field and what they're studying and all these different things. And, And you end up with a lot of industrial and systems engineering students doing process work in software companies. Okay. And um, and they make a lot of times really, really good project managers because they're just wired to think in terms of system and process and that kind of stuff. Right. Because that's a lot of what they engineer. Okay. But but there isn't any curriculum that says like there's curriculum that says this is how you evaluate a manufacturing process and this is how you optimize it right so lean you know value streams or all that kind of stuff um and there's math around it and everything um they're not there's no theory about about how to organize software organizations okay there's nothing academic right there's nothing i think that's been studied um you know Academia tends, at least best I can tell, tends to look at organizations and see what they're doing and seeing what's working. But but I don't know that that's a valid approach in an era of really rapid change. Okay. And and, and it all comes down to uh, it all comes down to this concept we talk about a lot of encapsulation versus orchestration. Mm-hmm. And and it's it's very much like. Um, if we want to push decisions down to the lowest part of the organization, then the people at the lowest part of the organization have to be organized in such a way that they can make and execute on those decisions. Okay. And if, if they are not autonomous to make those decisions, either from dependencies or different coordination or approvals or whatever, right, then there's inevitably some degree of orchestration, right, which is basically management, right, um, sequencing of work, right, decomposition of work. And so when you can, when you can do things like maximize encapsulation, minimize orchestration, I can't remember if we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Um, I'm no political science major, but as, as I understand kind of how the U.S. was uh, was structured, right. you had, you know, this idea of, you know, states' rights versus federal rights. And the idea is that the states are supposed to be autonomous and be able to make their decisions. And anything that wasn't explicitly granted to the federal government was the responsibility of the states. And so, and I think that even works in the states, right, where you have like municipalities and they have certain agency and they have all the ability to decide unless the the rights are granted to the state. And the state has the ability to decide unless the rights are granted to the federal government. And so, and so the idea was, is that there was an encapsulation. We we were prioritizing for maximum encapsulation and minimal orchestration at okay. the federal level. 
Um, I think one of the challenges that we have in our society, good, bad, whatever, right? There's no political statement being made here. But I think we have an, an encapsulation orchestration problem in the United States, right? The big battles that we're having are what should be able to be decided locally versus what needs to be decided federally. Yeah. You know, pick your issues on left or right. There's a battle between whether the state should decide or whether the federal government should decide. And and it's a, it's a really, really interesting thing. Well, isn't right. it also that most of them yeah. want – the states want autonomy until people don't get what they want at the state level and then they want it to be kicked upstairs. Yeah, I mean that, – and that's the thing, right? It, and it, now, you, now you put in it, – it's probably a parallel in the companies too, right? It's like there is a model architecture mm-hmm. that was put in place um, that was supposed to operate on a set of principles. Yeah. And, and yeah, people – when you put people in the mix with agendas – on the left or on the right, um, people make local optimizations to do what they feel is in their best interest or in the best interest of, of mm-hmm. um, furthering their agenda. So if they think they can get it done federally and mandate it to everybody and that's on their agenda, then they'll do it. If they can't get it done that way, then they want it to be states' rights, right? So so human beings are often hypocrites, yeah. but but that doesn't say anything about the design principles of the system. You know, and so, you know, like in a in a system, like a services oriented architecture, the idea is that the service is, you know, somewhat autonomous and it gets orchestrated outside. So it gets called, you know, there's an input, there's an output, that kind of a thing. The data is encapsulated within that service. It is ownership of the service at the point that I start violating service boundaries and I start um, interacting with that data. Yeah. Um, um, outside of the contract, then then I find myself I create dependencies and I create weird things, and then I have to. And then that's when I have to have months of testing because you know okay. I can't guarantee that anything broke, or if I don't have tests around right. system boundaries, right? So so there's there's something in that space, and 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 so what I what I don't think is I think people look at the technology um, separate from the the business process and okay. and one of the things apparently i said a long time ago chris beal quotes me on this a lot he goes if you don't get your your systems and technology or systems and process i think as he says but systems process technology organized around your customers and markets you're going to fail right at the scrum team level that's basically like i have a customer the team owns the technology. I have right. a dedicated team. Like that is the scrum team manifestation of organizing around customers and markets. Um, I, I think I think where it's going to go, and we've talked about this before, is I think I think there's a pattern emerging in the market right now, and I think a lot of people are talking about the same idea through different lenses. Okay. So I, I, I bought a I bought a bunch of books. I haven't read them all on domain driven design. Yeah. And there's something in the space of domain-driven design. Not an expert on it by any means. How would you explain what it is to people that don't have any idea what you're talking yeah, about? Yeah, so it's it's basically like I think it's like an encapsulation story, right? Okay. It's like basically saying that we're gonna we're gonna encapsulate this technological component around some sort of business domain or some sort of customer need. Um, like a messaging app. We're going to build one. Yeah, it creates, like a, it creates like a defined set of responsibilities for a set of customers okay. that can be wrapped in tests. And so, so again, probably somebody could cross check me on that, but that's like the space of it. Right. Okay. And then there's this idea of business architecture. So you ask, are there people in companies that are supposed to have stewardship over the architecture of the organization? Right. Well, yeah, they, typically it's like business architects, Right. So there's this there's this relationship between like domain design, enterprise architecture, business architecture. Um, you know, Gartner's talking about this idea of composable enterprises. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I, I don't know who's a proponent of this or where it started, but there's this idea of a product driven organization. Yeah, that's a very big thing now. PDO. Well, yeah. well, what are you basically saying in there? You're basically saying you're organizing around products. What is a product? It is a it is a set of people and process and technology that are organized around a specific customer need. Okay. And so and so if you're going to organize around products or you're going to do like projects to products, mm-hmm. right? All of this stuff, all of these things are encapsulation orchestration um, okay. kinds of things. 
That's what we're doing on the business process side with agile transformation. Right. That's what when we start to like a well done um, cloud migration probably is pulling apart the components of the legacy technologies and modernizing them in such a way that they're organized around technology domains that are in alignment with business capabilities that are um, that are overlapped with the organizational design and the governance and the process. So we can do PDO and we can do projects to products. And okay. like, and so, but it's like, everybody's looking at these things in silos. Yeah. And one of the things that, you know, and, and trying to take really good care of their silo, despite all the other ones. Yeah. One of the things that, that I'm going to try to um, try to talk about more next year. And, and I'm a little hesitant because like, I'm not a deep, domain expert personally on the technology transformation side. Um, you know, I grew up in software organizations. I grew up in software process. I grew up in project management. So it's like, I feel like I deeply, deeply have language yeah. and can speak to the, space. The, the, that space. Right. Yeah. Um, but there was something, there was a conversation I had 15 Years ago or something, I, I got to spend some time with Alistair Coburn and David Spann up in North Carolina. And I was working at Check Free at the time, now Serve, And a lot of the work that we were doing when we would do these projects, we would do some degree of legacy refactoring okay. and make the services oriented on the backside. And I had this idea that I think is really true. It's like when you talk about um, you know, taking a legacy monolith and you talk about modernizing it or moving it to the cloud or making it services oriented or doing product extraction. Um, I've said lots of times to people that that what we do on the organizational design side is the same thing. OK, right. It's like, how do you take a legacy, poorly architected organization and turn it into a services oriented, a team oriented yeah. Right. Um, that, and that's not just I mean, that's business process. It's culture. It's technology. It's, it's, it's everything. everything. Right. Yeah. It's everything. Right. So all that stuff has to get into alignment. And and the challenges that we're having is that on the one extreme, there's no unified theory around it. Right. Mm-hmm. It's everybody's in their own domains doing this local optimization stuff. Right. And so getting everybody aligned enough and on the same page and seeing things the same way um, is just an absolute challenge, right? Okay. It's an absolute challenge. Now, the the Agilists, like it's it's in our air, right? We get it. Yeah. But, but the people that are competent to do team level scrum coaching right. don't understand um, the nuances of the challenges that they that the organization must overcome. Yeah. And the coaching organizations don't typically have a transformation strategy. Okay. And furthermore, they don't have agency to create that unified change across the organization. Okay. And so and so again, it's like the business is locally optimizing in terms of how it's thinking about all of these things as independent, unrelated entities. Right. And then on the other extreme, we have agile coaches that um, I think intuitively kind of want to understand the systems thinking and stuff like that and want to nod to it. Um, but just fundamentally don't have agency to make any of those kinds of changes. Um, okay. and, and I'm not convinced. They, Do you they, think they understand it well enough that even if they had that agency, they could be responsible with it? No. Okay. No. I mean, think about it, right? I mean, think about it for the most part, right? The people that come through your class and, and no disrespect, right? I mean, it's, it's a kind of a, it's kind of entry level group for the most yeah. part, right? They're just, they're kind of getting their training wheels on. Right. And they go in and they're like, OK, we're going to do scrum and this is how you do scrum. And these are all the things and we're going to do stand ups and we're going to do this and we're going to do that. Yeah. And and all of that stuff, you know, again, I'm on record, like obviously you work in my organization and it's like obviously I'm a believer that knowing how to do scrum is a, is a, is a thing to know. Mm-hmm. But in the absence of from teams and the ability to create strategic backlogs. It just doesn't work. Right? right. And so what I think people are seeing is that they, they, they've wanted to buy the easy button for so long. 
Okay. And they say, okay, scrum training, hire scrum masters. Okay. Well, I'm not going to do scrum masters. I'm going to have somebody in the team do the scrum mastering work. And, you know, but now I'm 10 times overloaded. I'm operating in a broken system. I don't have all these things aligned. So, so people are asking, well, what value is this creating? And asking it after several years of trying to get their heads around. Yeah, I mean, they're they're trying to do, but, but, but here's the problem in a well formed system of delivery, knowing how to do scrum is essential Mm -hmm. in a poorly formed system of delivery knowing how to do scrum is kind of irrelevant Um, because like, you know, normally like people will say stuff like, and this has been going on for 13 longer years, right? I've been around for 13 years in this business. Um, It's like, well, we're doing scrum great, but we're not able to produce software. We're, We're doing scrum great. The teams love it, but you know, well, they love it because there's camaraderie and scrum master and we're trying to make it fun and sticky notes and transparency yeah. and all this different stuff and collaboration and talking to each other. And, and all that stuff's great. Right. It gets into like what I was talking about in that culture talk. It's like it, it's like it's the blue side yeah. of the culture. Um, but <laughs> but if you don't have the red side, if you don't have the you delivery side of it, then. So, OK. Yeah. So. Heading into the new year, because yeah. this is, I agree with everything you said, and I think anybody listening would agree with it. It's also kind of bleak. <laughs> I mean, what what should people, what should companies, what should leaders in companies be thinking about? Yeah, because it's almost like they got half of it and they got stuck, and now it sort of doesn't work, and it's like they're just in the doldrums, waiting for stuff to change. Yeah, the, where I think it's going to go, this is where it's going. This is this is what I'm positioning leading agile for right now. Um, is is I think that everything leading agile has been doing in the organizational business transformation agile at scale side, right, is absolutely essential. Um, but but I think we're going to have to connect to different value props. And okay. the value prop that I think, so the way I'll, I'll talk about it internally is I think we're going to become more technology forward. We're, we're becoming more technology forward. Okay. What does that mean, right? Well, so so there's huge business drivers to move to the cloud. There's, there's um, tremendous opportunity if you move to the cloud properly to exploit cloud native services. Mm-hmm. There's, there's huge risks if you move to the cloud inappropriately that you're going to drive up costs and not be able to deprecate your yep. data centers and all that kind of stuff. Um, the, the strategies that people talk about, I think there's seven or eight of them, depending on what you read. Maybe it's five, maybe it's seven. Um, but the, the ones that I think about a lot are kind of in this space of like replatform or refactor kind of a thing where, you know, we take it and kind of lift and shift up or we rewrite it and move it into a more, you know, from a cloud ready to a cloud native kind of environment. Right. And, and, and I, and I think, again, I think the problem is fundamentally the same. How do you do the analysis on the software to decide how to strategically replatform and refactor Mm -hmm. that software and how do you bring the organization along with it? Yeah. And how do you change its operating model so it doesn't revert? Um, one of the things that I think is that, you know, this word, like, you know, for the last five or 10 years, maybe we've been hit with this word digital transformation. And, mm-hmm. you know, and a lot of times we'll, we'll have people call us and go, oh, we want to talk to you. We're doing a digital transformation. I'm like, oh, what do you mean by that? Yeah, I was just going to say, what does it mean? Yeah. Well, it's a catch-all, right? It's yeah. a catch-all to sell products. It's a catch-all to sell services. It's been very technology-focused. And, and, and I think the thing that's been missing from this first round of digital transformation, say, well, why is it failing? Well, because it's really easy to move stuff up into the cloud if you're not if, if you're you gonna do it, about it but if you don't have to if you don't have to like justify the expense of it or or you have the time to do the total rewrite or whatever. Um, okay. And so it it's like it's like what you've got to do is you gotta move the technology and you gotta move the organization at the same time. Which is more work for them to do. Yeah, I was talking talking to a guy a couple weeks ago. I can't really name drop on this one. But we were talking about the idea that um, 
you know, the role that AI is getting ready to play. It, I mean, AI is a really disruptive thing. And you think about what do you need to have like a local, like a company GPT kind of a thing. Yeah. Right? And, and well, you have to have your data and the data has to be right. And it has to be organized and all these different things. And so you start to get into conversations around, um, data architecture, data governance, the cultural and political aspects that prevent um, data integration, moving data to the edge, things like that. And and so the conversation we were having is that, so in kind of what I might call like digital transformation 1.0, it's largely right. a technology play um, that, that kind of left the people and the process and the organization. <laughs> the side of the road. All of it behind, right? Yeah. yeah. And and so I think the hallmarks of this next round are going to be that AI, data, data governance, those kinds of issues are going to force real legitimate technology change that you can't fake. Okay. And it's going to absolutely um, have to change systems of delivery. It's going to have to change structures, processes and culture. Right. around things. There's going to have to be a different way of looking at it. Okay. And so, you know, where I predict we'll be in a couple years is a much more technology forward organization. Right. You know, we started building out our studio. We haven't talked about it a ton. Um, we do, uh, you know, we've done some product extraction work, um, you know, some huge cost savings plays, things like that. Remediation projects, things. Yeah. Could you explain product extraction? Because that's something leading agile people talk about all the time. And I'm not sure if that's yeah. super clear to everybody. Yeah. I mean, again, like I'm a I'm not a deep practitioner in this stuff. And so like I I try to make things really simple and really, really clear. The the way that I look at almost everything we do, if you if you think about um if you think about like what we do on the process side, we take big legacy, traditionally aligned, functionally siloed organizations mm -hmm. and we we basically make it services oriented. We restructure, we redo the teaming strategies, redo the, redo the governance models, redo what it measures, redo what it controls and how it looks at itself. What product extraction basically is, is it's taking, um, it could be, services, microservices. It could be, um, you know, like I think Michael Feathers would call it like legacy refactoring. Okay. But it's like legacy refactoring, not like pulling out and rewriting everything from scratch or refactoring it from scratch, but it's like sure. very strategically finding seams in it, um, breaking it apart, aligning it with the business, aligning so it. So taking something that's woven into a fabric with other things and making it plug yeah. and play. yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. And at the end of the day, right, it's encapsulation orchestration, right? It's taking big yeah. monoliths and breaking them into smaller, more distinct things, right? That's the, I mean, I know that sounds like so simple. No, it does. It's, it's perfect. Well, but, but it's like, but this is the, this is the thing, right? It's like you talk to the technology people and it's like, technical mumbo jumbo blah 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 right and then you go into the the business side and it's all politics and organization yeah. and process and governance and all this stuff and 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 it's kind of like the the business side just going okay i just need you guys to go fix this go build the technology like whatever okay and then the technology side is like yeah we're doing all this cool technical work and then it's like it doesn't align with the business and like somehow like like it, maybe it's me, right? We just got to come along and say, look, we got to take all these big things and we got to break them into small things. And then we break them into small things. We want the business small things and technology yeah. small things to be aligned with each other. And we want to wrap them in tests and put dedicated teams in them and have well-defined inputs and well-defined outputs. So everything's operating predictably and reliably and scalably. Yeah. It's like, it's as simple as that. All right. It's as simple as that. I'm about to get like a hat trick in this podcast. Okay. One cool. other thing that people leading out to talk about, I've been wanting to talk about on a podcast, which okay. to me seems kind of simple, but I don't think um, people outside of leading agile and other companies talk about it this way. Okay. Could you explain working in the system versus working on the system? Because to me, that ties oh, yeah. right into where we are. Yeah. And if we get that, this is the best podcast I've done for leading agile all year. 
Well, so I mean, dude, it's just you just up the game every time we do this, man. It's like everyone's the best. No, because I these are three things I always want to talk about, and, I, and every I can never get them all together. So, okay. so um, that language for me came out of the Entrepreneur Award world. Okay, and so when you say in the system versus on the system. I can either every day I have the choice mm-hmm. to go into a client and to work on the client's work, mm-hmm. or I have the opportunity to build an organization that serves the client. Okay. So when I'm doing marketing, sales, um, oh gosh, it's probably even more nuanced than that. When I'm building systems to do things at scale, I'm working on the system. Build the machine that builds the thing versus yeah, so like I can thing. build, I can work on my marketing engine or yeah. I can spend time with you creating content. Yeah. I can build a finance team or I can um, do my chart of accounts. Okay. I can build a, I can build a repeatable, scalable methodology for large scale organizational change or I can go consult on the ground with a client. And for our clients, they need to do this too, right? I mean, that's what we're exactly. teaching, right? Yeah. And so for the clients, if you have a developer that is sitting there writing code, they're writing, they're operating in the system. If they're going to training to learn how to do Scrum, they're operating on the system. If I okay. am, if I am sitting in a portfolio governance meeting making decisions about which projects to work on, then I'm working in the system. If I'm designing um, a queuing system and a governance model to flow work through the system and radically change how we're approving work and tie it to our OKRs and KPIs, then I'm working on the system. And they, okay. Does that make sense? Yeah, it totally does. But am I wrong in thinking that most companies are so focused on working, um, in the system that they neglect working on the system and that that's when they want agile that's they, that's the fix like bring in the agile it'll fix the system well so but, but the system's too broke down to be able to do agile right so it doesn't totally fix the system well so like the the language is the language is even hard right because it's like it's like you have the people and the people operate in a system and the system is wrapped in a process and the process gets measured and the process gets controlled. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I have empathy for like young systems engineers when I'm talking to them about these kinds of things, because, you know, if they're, they are more likely than not going into companies as young people and they're operating in very broken systems. Mm-hmm. And they might be given like a process improvement project to take waste out of a broken system. Yeah. And I go, but the system's broke. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And it's like, but they don't have eight. They're just improving the existing system. Yeah. You know? Um, yeah. And so I mean, this is, this is exists all over the place. I mean, the environment's another example of that happening where it's, we just fix what the problem we have in front of us instead of what's creating well, the problem well, in the first place. Sh- well, for sure. I was having a conversation with my youngest son today who's 20 two almost, and um, just came back from a study abroad in Ghana, Africa. And so you might imagine his head is swirling with mm-hmm. like ideas and views of the world. And Culture shock from coming back. 22 and he thinks he knows everything, right? So he's, um, he's a fascinating young man to talk to. Love him. I uh, <laughs> love talking to him, but fascinating young man to talk to. And, and I was thinking about after this last conversation we had this morning, that like in my life, my life is a system, right? And yes. so like I have to I have to balance it in such a way where I take care of my physical body. I have to pay attention to my diet and my nutrition, my food timing, when I exercise, my macronutrients, and I have to pay attention to meditation and kind of my spiritual life and, and hobbies and fun things. And then I have to I have to have time for my wife and I have to have time for my kids and I have to figure out how to run my business and protect my economics and make sure that we have long term security. And in, in any given time, there's an ebb and a flow. And sometimes I have to spend more time on business stuff and, and I neglect my health in ways that I shouldn't. And then, you know, sometimes I'm paying attention to my, my physical stuff and my health and 
relationships suffer or my mental health suffers or my spirituality suffers. And, and so, so bringing all the aspects of the system in balance simultaneously to me is kind of an exercise in systems thinking. It's like on any given day, there are things that I could do better for my health or for my marriage or for my company or for my, um, you know, state of mind. Right. But I'm trying to balance all of them and to keep them together simultaneously. Right. And it, it's and it's a fascinating thing. The, the way I, I conceptualize running Leading Agile, it's interesting because we're a very, very dynamic company and clients change, and market change right. and all that stuff from the exchange. And, and I hold, I have to think of my leadership team, like everybody has a set of concerns, but I also know those concerns compete with each other, mm-hmm. right? So it's not a static system. So I imagine like people on like moving pegs, they're like kind of moving pegs and they're all connected to each other with rubber bands. Yeah. And so if I move here, then it pulls on other parts yeah. of the system. And so part, like a first order bit of conversation we have is I go, look, I understand that this is your set of concerns, but I also understand that creates tension between what you're trying to do and what this other person's trying to do. And I need you to sit in that tension and I need you to balance it because you don't get to go in your corner and do whatever you want to the exclusion of this person. Yeah. Because it's a little bit like, well, like one of the obvious ones is like sales and marketing, mm-hmm. like marketing has to produce a set number of inbounds. Right. And then sales goes and tries to get those converted into opportunities for us. And there's a right. tension. Right. And sometimes there's a tension with delivery, right? Because delivery is trying to do something inside and they need stuff from marketing and they need contract work done. And there's all these little forces that are pulling on each other. And and I think a lot of times for the sake of, um, you know, inability to deal with abstraction, inability to deal with uncertainty, ambiguity, like people kind of go like, well, this is what I do and this is what I want to do and this is how I do it. And this is what this is what it's going to be. And it's the same every single time. Yeah. And and what ideally what we want people to do is to hold a set of concerns and keep those concerns in balance with the dynamic changing system around them. Okay. And, you know, so where I was going to go a little bit earlier is, you know, there's so many people that have written. The first person that I encountered in this um, was Seth Godin in his book, Lynchpin. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he introduced this idea to me. I don't think he he made up the idea. But the idea is that our educational system is really designed to train factory workers, right. Right? people that, that you know, can do things and solve math problems and do what they're told and turn things in on time and all that kind of stuff. But the reality is that life is a set of variables that move around all the time and they're in tension with each other all the time. Yeah. The bigger your world gets, the more variables and the more tension and the more things you have to consider. Right. And, you know, and so... You know, I don't know what the long-term problem well, societally is, but it's like we almost need to start teaching people systems architecture, well, you, um, risk but, management, abstraction, dealing with uncertainty. With all the things that you were talking about balancing yeah. just within your own label, just use you as the system. Yeah. My – and this is what I want to check in with you on. My uh, assumption is that no matter what I do – and it kind of goes to Alistair's thing about you know, there's an unlimited number of things he can't do. Mm-hmm. No matter what I do – I'm letting go of something else at any given moment. And what yeah, I'm constantly sure. trying to do is to juggle the disappointments so that I achieve the best possible result, given the fact that I can't hold everything at once. Yeah, I, I think I think that's that's probably that's probably a reasonable way of looking at it. Okay. Um, so but there's an expectation that people have that they will achieve like peace and enlightenment or businesses will become stable and thrive and you won't have all these peaks and valleys. I don't think that's ever going to happen. It's like, like I think we talked about this last week too. I'm I'm like, we we actually did two of these pretty close back to back. So, so I'm kind of wondering like what I said last week versus what this week, but, but the way I've been thinking about, I've been thinking a lot about like this idea of like, Divine masculine, divine feminine, yin, yang, yeah. chaos, order, left brain, balance, right yeah. brain, right? And well, but so like the balance, I think, and in, in, in the systems that we're moving in, everything's moving so fast and everything changes. Yeah. And so, so like the trick in systems design is, is I don't think you can build static systems and expect them to run right. forever. 
I think what you have to do is you have to put a minimal control structure in place mm-hmm. that brings order and and minimizes ambiguity. Or just enough um, order. Just enough order. Yeah. Right? Um, a little bit like what what is Schwaber say, controlled chaos? Like yeah. it's like if you look at a scrum team, it's just enough order on the outside so that the magic can happen on the inside. Yeah. And and that's what we're hunting at scale. And that's what's super, super difficult, right? Is because I think people and their personalities, I think, will tend to over-index on order yeah. or over-index on disorder. And the people that over-index on disorder pull really hard in that direction and don't mm-hmm. want structure. And then sometimes the structure people overcompensate with control. Yeah. And so if you can somehow create a system that is in alignment, is in balance, and again, it's just enough structure that allows right. the creativity to flow through it. And then and then ideally, because you've created a modular system with minimal governance, when the the needs of the world change, even the control structures can be minimally reorganized and redirected to repurpose the creative flow that runs through the system. Yeah. Right. There's something in that dance that I think is, is what we're, we're hunting for okay. a little bit. And, and, and it, this might be an artifact of, you know, you, I, I go back to um, one of the most um, profound classes I took in school was um, called the the history of science or the history of science. Okay. And um, there's this book, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, by Thomas Kuhn. He kind of popularized the concept of a paradigm shift. Okay. And and I think to some degree we're going through a paradigm shift. And I think as AI becomes more yeah. prevalent, we're going to see even and change is going to happen faster. And and I think the unfortunate side effect of that. Is that there's going to be people that are going to get left behind. Like what Thomas Kuhn talks about in the book is he goes, basically, he goes, what, what starts to happen is that you have this, you have this way of thinking and people start to branch out from it and they get pulled right. back and made fun of and all these different things. And then eventually it starts to get momentum. But, but I, again, this has been 30 something years since I read this book, but, but the, basically the idea is that the old guard almost has to die. Yeah. In a way, so that these new ideas can fully take form. Yeah. So, so I, I've actually conceptualized this over the years, um, you know, cause sometimes it's like you go in and help companies, they have leadership changes and they go back and they undo everything that you've done, yeah. um, you get it working and it's just like, and then you have some that it sticks right for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's like, but I gotta believe on some level um, I, I mentioned that we don't have like this unified theory, but I, I want to believe that these principles that we're putting out there are are taking hold and people understand it. Yeah. And, you know, maybe as the younger people move in and, you know, we replace some of the older people and then the people behind us replace us. Yeah. You know, we start to see some of this like core paradigm shift. Yeah. Right. Um, I'm, I'm concerned a little bit right now that the pendulum is kind of swinging you know, from hyper order and, and in some ways like chaos. Right. And what I think, well, this is what I think the net effect will be is I think the people that are building power are going to continue to build powder, power and order and structure. Right. And they're going to have so much of it that the people that are, are going against it, I, I, you know, I'm not trying to do, be like, yeah. um, you know, doomsday prophecy or anything, but, but it, I, I don't think the idea is like tear down order and structure it's like, how do we balance it with creative energy? You know, because right. you don't want anarchy. You want a system that yeah, it's allows like, for the creativity. It's like that's what that's what we're trying to do in Agile. It's like it's like it's just enough order so that we can establish velocity and start predicting time and cost. But it goes to like so much disorder that people are just like, well, you know, just trust the team and let us do our jobs and no managers. And, you know, we'll give you the product when we give it. Well, like that doesn't, that's not going to work. Yeah. Not in most companies, right? If you're a small startup, again, like my caveat is if you're a small startup and that's working for you and you have customers that are buying from you, like more power to you. Yeah. 
But I'm just saying that in most organizations at scale, as you scale, you have to have at least some minimal order. Okay. And so if we can't go to the business and say, you're going to put a million bucks in, we expect a 4 million ROI over this period of time. Here's the net present value, like all that stuff. Like it's a non-starter. Okay. You can't have that conversation. Um, and, and I don't think every business model works in that total chaos. All right. So yeah, go for it. I'm going to try to wrap it up too, because we're getting close to an hour, (laughs) but, um, I want to try to leave folks with a little bit of hope. So, okay, I think there's a lot of hope in it, man. It's well, just like it's just like we just have to understand what we're doing here. Yeah, but but if there is one thing that you could have everybody pay more attention to that than than they are paying attention to right now, what would it be in business? Um, let me give a principle. That I find myself saying over and over and over. And I go like, it'll manifest something like this. I'll say like, hey, I've learned something really cool that um, can solve this class of problems. And they go, well, we're kind of doing that. Is it working for you? And, and, And I find myself in a lot of areas of life. I go like, I go like, okay, cool. You're doing that. Is it working? Yeah. Is it? Sometimes it's like, is it bringing you peace in your life? Yeah. Is it producing the results you want? Are you getting what you want? Well, I'm, I'm dieting and I'm kind of tracking macros on this. Well, are you losing weight? Are yeah. you getting healthier? Is your blood work working out? Right. All this kind of thing. Yeah. People with religion, they go, well, I'm doing all these things and blah, blah, blah. And I go, well, is it bringing you peace? Do you feel serenity? Do you feel this? Yeah. Do you feel that? Well, then maybe it's not working. Or right? maybe they're Catholic. <laughs> okay. okay. So that'll be a conversation we can have offline because I got, I got some thoughts on that. So, yeah. So these are the things that are swirling around in my head. And it's like, it's like something happens in the space of like, I have a problem to solve. Right. Um, here is the best practice for doing it. Mm-hmm. I'm doing the best practice. Am I getting the result I want? And what I find a lot is that people have a problem. They apply a best practice. They're not getting the result. But they keep applying it. Well, they keep applying it or they stop applying it or they say it was a bad practice or something. And and at the end of the day, it's like um, it doesn't matter what you do if it's not producing the result that you want. Right. In, in classic scrum, well, we're doing daily standards, we're doing reviews and retrospectives, we're doing this and we're doing that. We're doing everything Dave taught me. Are you producing working tests of software every two weeks? <laughs> Can you put it in front of a customer? Can you potentially ship it? Do you have, is it giving you a leading indicator of when um, you're going to be done? Right. right. All these different things. And so, um, and so that would be the thing. It's like, is the system that you've put in place producing the results that you right. want it to produce? And, and if it's not producing the results, it's not necessarily that the best practice is wrong. It might right. be how it's being applied or the, the environment that it's being applied into, yeah. right? All that kind of stuff. And okay. so it's super, super nuanced. And so, yeah, I just can't tell you how many conversations I have where I'm talking to people and they're like, well, we're doing that. Well, you're getting the results. Not, yeah. Okay. And that's a good one. They're not, right? Yeah. So stop doing things that aren't getting results or change the things. Understand, like, you know, I keep going back to it. It's like, understand. Or just even ask the question. Well, understand why the things that you're doing are supposed to work. What's the underlying theory? Like, why would I believe it would work? Have I created those? Like, it all goes back to the shit that I talk about, right? Yeah. And so, and so it's like, it's like, adapt it to what will work for you and produce the results with your people, your team, your environment, this place, this time, right? All that kind of stuff. Because all of this stuff that is considered best practice, which is something that somebody did sometime. Cool. Right. And so I think the more that we can pay attention to systems and interactions and understand the relationship between order and chaos and left brain and right brain and all these different things, I think we have a we have a shot at bringing order and maintaining fluidity and ad- adaptation. Cool. And if we over-index on one or the other, we are going to inevitably fail. All right. But I think there's a lot of hope for the future. Yeah, so that's good. Good. Some people are figuring it out. Like I think it's happening in some places. Not everybody. Somebody I read heard something the other day. It's like the future's here. It's just not evenly distributed. 
It's like <laughs> people, some people that got it, but like not everybody. Has yeah, it. yeah. Cool. I think it's something in that space. All right. Cool. Yeah, I got my last question yeah, of the year. Question? Okay, what's the last question of the year? Best meal you had all year. What was it and who'd you have it with? Gosh, there's some risk of some recency bias here. Um, I'm not even going to be able to remember the name of this place. There's a steakhouse in Atlanta I'd never heard of. Just ate there a couple weeks ago with my oldest son, who just got married, and okay. my middle son, who is getting married next summer. Okay. And it's a place that my middle son is thinking about having his rehearsal dinner at. Um, shoot, I wish I could remember. Well, we can find the name and have Tim put it in the show notes. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, so had some really good meals in, um, Vail, Colorado. So we went on a ski trip last year. And so there's this place in Vail, in Vail Village called La Bottega. Um, and it's a, it's kind of an Italian restaurant and we don't do a lot of Italian in our family, but, um, that's become a family favorite. And, cool. and again, you know, it's it's so much of this stuff is just driven by the company. Yeah. And so pretty much any time that I can get um, get all my boys together with their significant others and my wife and share good food and good wine. Um, it's pretty That's cool. It. Cool. It's pretty cool. Yeah. All right. Love to see that come to mind. Cool. Thanks, cool, man. man. Appreciate Thank it. You. Happy yep. New Year. And Happy New Year to you, too. See, all right. you. see you.